0: Welcome to the OA Light a a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org, where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The opinions ex- expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not repus- represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Michael. Michael.
1: Hey. Hi, everybody. My name is Michael, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Lucy, thank you for asking me to do this. This is... Uh, Probably this is my th- <laughs> well, I have a commitment at uh, kitchen sink at nine o'clock, so I was with you guys at nine and then I went to another meeting at ten thirty and then I did the laundry, I did some banking, and now this is my third meeting and uh, I don't know about you guys, but this time of year, three meetings is is a good thing for me. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what it is, you know, I always try to think about it and analyze stuff, but you know, it's just the season that families are supposed to be together, and there's all kinds of love, and there's all kinds of, but you know, my head thinks sometimes that it's Pollyanna BS, and I was just talking to Renee about, you know... Uh, you know, we, we keep things under the carpet and, you know, nobody really talks about what's really going on. But then I thought, that's the way it's supposed to be. You know what I mean? It's the season to be jolly. We're not supposed to take each other apart and take each other's inventory. And I can take anybody apart in anybody's inventory on any given moment. So um, so I'm just really happy to be here. I got to you originally uh, in the early 80s, a while ago. And, uh, I had just gotten clean and sober, uh, and I, I had about a year of sobriety coming up and I was smoking three packs a day cigarettes and I, and I couldn't handle it. I was hitting bottom and I, and I'd share about it in meetings and they'd tell me to shut up. He said, you know what? I don't care. You can smoke yourself to death. We're here for for one purpose and to stop drinking. And I thought, that's kind of rude. I I thought I could talk about anything in that program. But somebody came up to me and and said, Michael, there's something called Smokers Anonymous. Why don't you go to that? I think it's still around. It's called Nicotine Anonymous now. And it's a 12-step program that could relieve me of the obsession. So I went, and there was one guy there with a big book, and he talked for an hour about what he was like, what happened, and what he was like now. And he said, see you next week. And it, it, in, in retrospect, I think it took about maybe six weeks for the three-pack-a-day obsession to be removed. And then quickly he nominated me secretary of that meeting, and, uh, and I'd show up many weeks with a big book, and nobody else would show up. So, oh, I forgot to tell you, there was this guy in AA, his name was Red C, and he wore red suspenders, and he looked like Burl Ives, who's was an old-time actor, Mm -hmm. and he talked like this, and when I was bitching and complaining about my cigarette addiction, he would just laugh at me, and he'd say, Michael, why don't you ask God for the willingness to be willing? the willingness to be willing to give up the cigarettes. And I thought, this guy's nuts. (laughs) But I asked. I I was in such pain. I took suggestions. And then not only did I ask God for the willingness to be willing, but this guy, this other guy in AA, you know, opened up and turned me on to Smokers Anonymous. And I had the willingness just to show up to that meeting, just to do little, little teeny thing. And in six weeks, the three-pack-a-day obsession was removed. So, um... So then I put on 30 pounds in 30 days. And um, it was not the first time I had compulsively overeaten, but it was the first time I was conscious of it because I was clean and sober and smokeless and like a raw nerve, you know what I mean? And so I, I went to AA, of course, and I said, You know, I, I get hungry after meetings. And I like Haagen-Dazs and I like eggnog shakes. And I and it's talked about all the stuff I was eating. And he said, don't you learn we don't care about your cigarettes we don't care about your food you know and i i okay you don't have to yell at me i know where to go now and i knew there was overeaters anonymous and i came to you guys and i and i listened and uh, and uh, I heard uh, three meals a day with nothing in between, and a lot of you didn't eat sugar, a lot of you didn't eat white flour, and I thought, well, I can do this. There's only one problem. I didn't ask for help, and I couldn't, and I kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And after about a year, I raised my hand. I said, my name is Michael. I'm a compulsive eater, and uh, I think I need help. And Matt Masterman, may he rest in peace, uh, lost over 100 pounds. He... He uh, stuck his hand out to me, and he he told me to call him. And I felt safe enough, or I was scared enough. I don't know if I felt safe, but I was scared. And so I called him, and he asked me what I was going to eat. And and, and I I had no idea because I I didn't want to know what I was eating. And he said, why don't you call me at the end of the day and tell me what you ate? Would you be willing to do that? And I said, well, yeah, I could do that. And I don't remember what I ate, but I know that it was cleaner than when I was doing it on my own because I knew I was going to report it to him. And so I was honest with him about the food that I was eating, and he got me into the habit of consistently taking a fifth step with my food. A fifth step is uh, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Well, my wrongs in those days, and still in these days, if I don't, if I'm not accountable to my higher power and another human being, um, can get me into a lot of trouble. So I started to do that uh, a little bit at a time, and the weight came off relatively easily, and I started to go to meetings, and I started to be of service, and I worked the steps with Matt. And um, so that was really, really nice. Um, And let me tell you a little bit about my compulsive overeating as well. Um, I was a skinny kid. I, I, didn't, I wasn't overweight. I, was, I remember in the second grade walking home from school and just feeling that my arms, that people were watching me. People, like, I was very self-obsessed. You know what I mean? And I just felt that I walked funny and I just, I never felt comfortable in my body. And I always thought that maybe if I, you know, was, was heavier that I might be a little bit more attractive. I don't know. I don't know what I thought. So, when I went to college, I went to LA City College, and, um, and I got into the theater arts department. And one of the first shows I did was, I was a munchkin right,
0: in the summertime.
1: And they bused school children in to see us and stuff, hundreds of kids and stuff. Little did I know that I'd be doing that. You know, That's my profession today. But anyway, so they bused kids in, and during breaks and rehearsal, there was a foster freeze on the corner. And the green room was very uncomfortable, you know, because people were just out there. They're theater arts people. They're, and I was very introverted and afraid. And, but I was doing what I like to do. But I found like eggnog shakes and I found um, paquitos. And that was a lot more comfortable than fraternizing with the people in the green room. And so I believe I weighed like 125 pounds when I went into the show, and then at the end, I think I was one seventy, one eighty, right? <laughs> and my waist had expanded, and, you know, I was in my 20s, my early 20s, and I kind of liked that, the, the girth that was around my stomach and everything, and I felt like I was maybe stronger, but, you know, that's like a 50-pound weight gain, you know, in, in a relatively short amount of time. And... Um, So anyway, that was sort of taken care of when I started practicing my alcoholism because cocaine will take off the weight, you know, a lot. And so I really didn't have to deal with it that much until I got clean and sober, like I said. So I don't know about you, but I like to rest on my laurels, you know, and I've been doing this for a while. And when I get comfortable, um, I get a little complacent. And I was working a part-time job for 12 and a half years in those days. And um, and I didn't want to commit to being full-time because in those days I considered myself an actor. And I had to be available for auditions uh, if auditions ever came my way. And so when I left my job at noon, um, I'd go to the beach a lot and I'd lay out in the sun because I needed to look good, you know, and then maybe I'd go for a run. But I never went on auditions. You know, and um, (laughs) so it it was kind of strange, and then I complain, you know, because I was just filing and doing this menial work, and I wanted to be an actor. And then I found Richie in this program. Richie was also a hundred pounder. May he rest in peace. And I would call and I'd complain, and I say, Richie, you know, I I want to act, and and he says, so why aren't you acting? He talked like this from from New York. And I said, well, you know, I'm exhausted at the end of the day. He says, you know what? There are actors that work 40-hour weeks, and they go and they do shows afterwards. He says, what are you talking about? What's wrong with you? Uh-huh. And, uh, and I thought, he's kind of rude as well. But and So then, you know, my mind, you know, it's a magic magnifying mind. My mother um, was diagnosed with schizophrenia in the, um, in the early 50s. And I'm an only child, so when she was diagnosed, uh, they didn't have any more children. And my mom was really, really... Uh, bad schizophrenic. She had many, many suicide attempts. Um, she um, she uh, had a lobotomy in the early 50s. In those days, they had an operation where they cut a part of your brain. And she wanted that because she was in horrible, horrible pain. And She loved shock treatment because afterwards she felt that she was shot back into reality. But it was only very, very temporary. And so in the early 50s, um, Uh, She was eventually at Camarillo State Hospital. And uh, in her early 40s, she keeled over uh, going to get a pack of cigarettes from a a heart attack and died. And uh, she did not have a a, a good life. And um, so I thought maybe when I don't want to get up and go to work in the morning, that I might have a chemical imbalance. Maybe I might have inherited something from my mother. And mind you, I was in my... 30s, maybe mid-30s at the time, and uh, I started going to a shrink, and the shrink told me that schizophrenia hits like in your late teens or early 20s, and chances are you're not schizophrenic, and I kind of didn't like that. I kind of, I didn't want to be a schizophrenic, but I didn't want to get out of bed and go to work. (laughs) And, and so, um, you know, I'd call my AA sponsor, and he'd tell me, you know, just, if you want to quit your job, that's fine, but make sure you have another job to back you up. And one day, and then I started getting really heavy into therapy. I started getting into uh, uh, self-help uh, group therapy. In those days, uh, you had to contact your inner child, and you carried teddy bears to meetings and stuff, and I had my own teddy bear. And... Um, And I remember going to anger workshops and just banging tennis rackets and just looking for... a way out, actually. In retrospect, it was looking for a way out instead of dealing with life on life's terms. And the more I got into therapy, the farther I got away from you. And I couldn't understand it. I couldn't handle both because in therapy, they wanted me to get introspective and they wanted me to, to feel my feelings and to really see how my mother hurt me by abandoning me and how my grandmother yelled at me. It's my grandmother raised me, by the way. Uh, may she rest in peace. And... Um, and just all these these crazy things that I had to get. And then when I come to you, you tell me, get out of yourself, Michael. Go find somebody and try to help somebody else because you are self-centered. And so therapy program, therapy program. So I chose therapy. And um, lo and behold, after having three therapists and a psychiatrist that finally prescribed an antidepressant for me, um, um, I started popping this this stuff. And I didn't tell my sponsor about it or anything like that. And I, and I started using these things alcoholically. Uh, I asked the shrink to give me more. Uh, and he said, well, Michael, this is supposed to level you out. You're not supposed to feel anything. You're just supposed to. And I said, no, I want to feel something. Give me more, please. <laughs> and, and he gave me more and stuff. And, and I was kind of living a lie in my other program because I wasn't talking to my sponsor at all. I was using these things to get out of reality and stuff. And so, um, and so uh, I was crazy. And, uh, and so I quit my job. That was my best solution. I called somebody in my therapy group. And uh, my sponsor wasn't at his desk at the time. And he said, I said, I want to quit my job. And he said, Michael, go with what's in your heart. So I gave my notice. I gave my two weeks' notice, and I quit, and I'm sure they were happy to get rid of me. But um, after about a couple of months, uh, the money ran out, and the lady that I was living with could not support me in the manner to which I was accustomed. And the the rent was due, and bill collectors were calling, and I was angry at my grandmother, who had been dead for 20 years, and I was angry at you, and I was just crazy. And I think... It might have been this venue that I went to a meeting and I saw Dr. Paul and Dr. Paul's in our big book. he wrote the the story on acceptance and he talked about people that were abusing this antidepressant, and then he, he said something which kind of changed my life. He said, never in my 20-some-odd years of sobriety have I had a problem to which the 12 steps did not offer me a solution. And I had been so far away from the 12 steps, and it just, it just resonated with me, and, uh, and I wanted what he had. And I was too afraid to ask him for his number, but his wife, Max, was sitting in the front row. And I asked Max, can I, can I have your husband's number? And, 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 and she gave it to me, and I started calling Dr. Paul. And um, he slowly but surely uh, instilled some trust in me and started to take my phone calls and started to get me back into the program. And lo and behold, I had realized that, um, that I had slipped in my AA program, that I was using these pills alcoholically. And um, and nobody told me to change my sobriety date. Uh, I told Dr. Paul I wanted to go back and join a home group because I'd never been a part of, a, of any home group in, in OA or AA. And uh, I told them this group that I wanted to join, and, and I had heard all kinds of horrible things about the group. They were like Nazis, and they, you know, they, they had to wear ties when they represented the program that was saving their lives. Can you imagine having to dress up when you're... Anyway, I, um, I surrendered to that program and to that uh, particular uh, um, brand of uh, working the 12 steps. And then I had realized that I had... Um, I wanted to change my date. And for me, it's real easy. If I'm popping pills or if I'm drinking or using or something, because I'm an alcoholic, it's part of my compulsive overeating disease. So if I lose my sobriety, I lose my abstinence. So I changed my date. And I started all over again after claiming seven years being clean, sober, and abstinent. And, uh, And so Richie still stayed with me. And uh, in that other program, you know, I don't know about you, but when I get, um, I just like to run the show myself, so before I joined this structured group that believes in strong sponsorship and telling your stuff to one person, one sponsor, I used to shop around my ideas to many, many people, and the person that agreed with me is the person who I'd follow their suggestion. And so... So when I, when I asked my AA sponsor, you know, I was in OA and I need to do this because, and he said, kid, try every diet that you can, and if you need to surrender to that other program, go ahead and do it. <laughs> and, uh, and I had done that before, and I didn't want to try every other diet. And my fear was that when I asked my AA sponsor that I was going to join OA, that he was going to say, well, no, because you can't have a sponsor in that program. And when I asked him, he said, you know, well, I'm not a compulsive re I can't help you in that program. Yeah, get a sponsor. And so all my fear was alleviated. And so I went to Richie again, and I said, Richie, I, I need help again. Please, please help me out. And so I started taking the fifth step. Oh, I actually took my fifth step with Richie. Uh, I couldn't find anybody that wanted to listen to my fourth step because I had just a Reams of stuff. Do- Dr. Paul has a pamphlet, and it's called whatever. It's an outside pamphlet, but um, but I-, I worked the steps in there, and Dr. Paul wouldn't listen to my step. <laughs> he wouldn't listen to it because he said, Michael, he said, I judge you. I think you sh-. He says it's my character defect. I think you should be farther along than you are, and you're not. So. The fifth step has to be a spiritual experience. I'm not going to listen to you. I can't. And I said, well, Dr. Paul, can't you ask God to remove your character? Because I really want you to listen to it. And he said, well, it's been 20-some-odd years. I don't think, but I'll ask. Him. So anyway, so poor Richie, you know, he said, you know, Michael, it, it took me three days to read my, my fourth step to his He says, yeah, I'll listen to your your, your stuff. And lo and behold, it took three days. Not three days straight. We stopped for food, of course, lunch and stuff. But after the third day, I don't know about Richie, but I was nauseous. Because it was the same stuff. Same character defects, just different people over and over again. But I got it done, and thank God, you know, I felt a a little bit more surrender to this program, and I started doing the deal. Um, So, where am I here? Okay. Okay. So Richie goes and he um, he leaves. He marries somebody in OA and they go to North Carolina. And I start calling Richie and he says, you know, Michael, you should have a sponsor that is here locally that sees you. And so I don't know about you guys, but it's hard enough just to get a, a a sponsor and get that. When you get that closeness, you don't wanna leave. And so Richie said like I was like a black cloud hovering over his head, you know, <laughs> just leave me alone. I used to wanna call Richie on a daily I'd call him Monday through Friday and then on weekends he'd say, Give me a reprieve
0: He'd say you
1: call somebody else on a weekend <laughs> And So I called Carl. I don't know if you guys know Carl. He's got a long-term absence. He moved to Florida. God bless him. I had started um, teaching, my teaching career, and uh, that was very, very scary. And so I called Carl before every meal. And uh, many times from the library, I just commit my food. And then Carl would say, you know... It, let me know what's going on. Let me know how you're feeling. You don't just need to talk, talk about your food. So I get his machine and I say, "God, Carl, I'm so scattered, and I've got to teach this special ed class, and I'm just going crazy, and I'm going to have chicken and a vegetable, and, and you know, and I just admit that stuff." And he was kind enough to to give Richie a reprieve on weekends, and so uh, and so he got me through. Um, The way I got my profession, like I said, I I never had a a full-time job until I was 43 years old. I'm very afraid of commitment. Uh, I'm just afraid, period. You know, I'm I'm kind of fear-based. That's the way I came out of the shoot. And uh, my sponsor found out that I had been student teaching um, before... um, before I came to you guys, and uh, he said, why don't you go back to your college and see what it would be like to get, uh, get your teaching degree? And I said, well, I don't think I want to teach. I said, I think I'm an actor. You know, I showed you how I was going to auditions. And son was very smart. He said, Michael, he said, it doesn't matter whether you teach, whether you act, whether you're a dentist. The spiritual principle is go back and finish something that you left incomplete. You stopped in the middle of student teaching. Can you go talk to a counselor? I said, well, okay, I can do that. So I went back and I talked to a counselor. It had been 17 years since I had student taught. This guy was persistent. He found all my records. And it turns out that I only needed to take two classes to get my teaching credential. And I went back to my sponsor and and he says, can you sign up for one class? I said, well, all right. And so I took one class. I got an A in the class without cheating. (laughs)
0: <laughs> because
1: I'm in program now, and I really actually studied, and I wonder if I can do that again. I took the second class, and I started student teaching again. And um, when I was student teaching, there was this little kids volunteered once a week to go to this orthopedically health impaired class—little babies and wheelchairs and walkers—and once a week we go and help them, and my heart melted. For some reason, I just felt an affinity for these kids. And long story short, the lady who was teaching this class said, Michael, when you go out after your student teaching, let me introduce you to a couple of people. If you want to do this, it's, it's, uh, I'll, I'll see if I can help you out. So I hated to go on job interviews. I was scared to death. But I went and lo and behold, I went on this one job interview and there was this OH class, orthopedically handicapped class, that was available. And I told the panel that was interviewing, I said, I don't have any experience, but for my student teaching, this class put together a little book of little things that they said about me. And they're little pictures of Mr. Blanc, Mr. B, we love you and we're going to miss you. And I said, this is my resume. And I handed them that, and the principal looked at it, and it was just, and they said, if you want the job, you have it, but you have to go back and get your special ed credential. And I said, okay, and I took it to my sponsor, and I knew that my heart was there. And so I was teaching this special ed class while one class at a time going to school to get my special ed credential and it's a wonderful way to go to college because i'm actually in the trenches learning what i'm doing and then you get the theory behind it as well and you know um... it just it just brings everything alive and it it took me years to get my special ed credential but i was being self supporting through my own contributions i was making a pretty good living at it and i was enjoying what i was doing and plus these parents with kids that had cerebral palsy and muscular dystrophy, these these bad diseases and stuff, were trusting me <coughs> with their kids. And that was miraculous. That was crazy. And, and the other thing that happened is that my filter... I didn't know these kids were special ed. After about a week, I would throw them up in the air, and I just, I just love them, love them, love them. I don't know if they learned anything, but I, I love these kids. And many times I'd say to Richie, I'd say, Richie, you know, they've got standards, and they wanted these kids to be reading fluency and stuff. And he says, Michael, just shut up and love the kids. Shut up and love the kids. And I still hear Richie's voice in my head today when I get all crazy and uptight, and say, just shut up and love the kids. So I started loving those kids, and then my wife starting have, started having kids of our own. So uh, we have uh, three children, and uh, so I was trying to be a dad, and I was trying to be a, a, a husband, and trying to be um, a, t- a good teacher as well, and, 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 and staying with you guys really, really close. You guys have taught me that... Um, it's really important to uh, have commitments at meetings, and that uh, even with my 29 years of abstinence, if I do not have a commitment at a meeting, and there's a Laker game on, or it's cold outside, that I will, um, I will not come to the meeting. Even with 29 years, commitments are very. For some reason, if I have a job at a meeting, then I've got to be at the job. And I'm also taught that, you know, you don't. Just leave the job. You get somebody to cover your commitment if you're not going to be there. And plus, there's no excuse not to be there. There's no excuse. The Academy Awards, the Dodgers, the Lakers, whatever. There's no excuse not to be there. It's uh, it's non-negotiable, as Danny has said in our men's tag last night. Certain things are non-negotiable. And commitments make that um, very clear to me. Um, so... Um, about 12 and a half, 13 years ago, my son, from a previous marriage, um, had a mental breakdown. And um, very, very scary. They 5150 him, and they locked him up. And uh, he came out of there, and he was diagnosed as bipolar. And uh, he was just laying on his mom's couch. And the only solution that the shrink saw was to give him more medication. <coughs> And so I went to meet with the shrink and my son, and I told my shrink about the program that I was involved in, and the shrink said, that's a great idea. Why don't you go with your dad's group and, and experience see what that's all about? And so my son was surrendered enough, and I think scared enough, to, to get a sponsor and to do what they told him to do. And so <coughs> he's been clean and sober for 12 and a half years, thank God. And... But uh, so uh, four months ago, my twenty year old son had a psychotic break, and um, so uh, he also was fifty one fifty. He seems like he's a lot worse than than my other son was. Um, he was hearing voices. he was uh, wanted to off himself. He was being honest about that. The voices were telling him to be quiet and not to say anything and not to be honest so he was um in uh, UCLA for about 3 weeks in the lockdown ward and um, and there was a lady also that was that was in my home group that was there at the same time and um and I didn't know it was her I saw her family there I know her family and stuff and this lady um committed suicide and um and so My son Nicholas has been out with us for about a month and a half. And my fear is that he's going to kill himself. And he's going three uh, times a a week to the UCLA aftercare program. And um, a lot of times I'm flashing back to my mom because I remember the look in my mom's face, the catatonic, just kind of lost look. And I'll look at Nicky and sometimes he'll look like that. And um, But there are people in the program that have mental illness in their family, and they assure me um, that the care now uh, is much different than it was in the early 50s and that, uh, that I need not be um, too concerned. But it scares me, you know. Uh, the other day I hung out with him and I took him to his therapy, and uh, it, was, it was a little awkward because we were quiet. And I always feel like I have to say something or fix something or snap them out of it. But there was some kind of a serenity in the silence. And um, and then we ate lunch together, and uh, and then we have a friend that does Tai Chi, and we went and we did Tai Chi together. And it was, it was just a lovely day. Um, my sponsor in Overeaters Anonymous sent me something um, um, from today 's reading in one of our spiritual books, and when my phone warms up, I think i 'll share it with you because it gave me a sense of comfort because I am so worried about everybody else in my family. you know my other uh, daughter has crohn 's disease, which is a stomach disorder that 's a lifelong thing, and, and so worried about her and um, so anyway, let me see if I can just bring this up real quick um, Let's see, it's coming, bear with me. Um, Those of you who are listening on tape, I'm going to sing a song for you while we're waiting to warm up. (laughs) Love is the answer. Okay, well it hasn't come up yet, so maybe it's not meant to be. Um, So what it's like today, um, and now my phone has come up, so hold on a second. Um, All right, so this says, um, it says, it's nothing less than a complete turnabout that this program brings into being. It gives me the amazing ability to release the people I love, to detach myself from their pain and turmoil and suffering, and turn them over in love to that same power within that is directing me. This act of release performed daily in a moment of quiet prayer exerts incredible influence on those I would help. I say and do only what is necessary to attend to my everyday responsibilities, showing the love I feel and radiating the calmness and peace that come from giving up control." For today, I turn over responsibility for the lives of others to the same higher power within each of them that manages my own life. Easier said than done, okay? I know that that's true intellectually and probably on a gut spiritual level, I know it as well. So what it's like today, I, um, and then I'll maybe be quiet and, and for a couple of questions if you have any um, so, yesterday I decided to sleep in, right? Um, and I slept until ten, eleven o'clock, and I ate, my daughter made me breakfast, and I walked the dog, and then I, my head started to say, well, we've got a lot of house cleaning to do, I've got lesson plans to do, and I, I got tired, and I just fell back asleep. I didn't do anything, right? And I wake up, and then the head is going crazy. And it just and I'm thinking, oh, my God. Look at Christine's got this clutter over here, and I'm not doing this. And I was fit to be tied. Somebody from the program called me and said, I'm not going to be at the meeting tonight. Michael, can you take my commitment? And I said, yes. Yes, please. <laughs> and, uh, and I hung up. And my family, you know, and I knew that I was in trouble and yet my head told me, because I don't have a formal commitment at that meeting, that I should be with my family, right? Maybe we should go to a movie. Maybe I, And I was in no fit, way fit spiritual condition to be with my family. So I went to the meeting, and I breathed, and I, and I just felt so good. And I came back, and I was like a different person. Um, my main fear today is... Um, doing new lessons. I'm at a school, one of my schools is a small school, and I, and I, and the fifth graders are mean. I'm telling you, they're mean.
0: <laughs>
1: and I've got enough curriculum for about a y- uh, half a year, and, and that, that half a year is gone, and now I have the other half of a year to deal with these people, and I, and I need to come up with new lessons, and I'm scared to death because I want to give new lessons to nurturing wonderful children, not not fifth graders that are ready to go for my jugular, you know what I mean? So anyway, there are teachers in the program that are walking me through this, and, you know, uh, it's, um, I don't know about you guys, but when I was in elementary school, it was a very hard time. Everything was a hard time, so I think about what I was like as a kid. And, uh, and I try to be nurturing and, and loving to these kids. But fifth graders or sixth graders, seventh graders, they're a different animal. You know what I mean? They're too cool for school, but they're just probably just as vulnerable, if, if not even more so. So I have to get this thick skin going on. Because, you know, if a third grader says something wrong to you, you, say, you can say, oh, you hurt my feelings. You say that to a fifth grader, they go, yeah! And they'll go right to the gym. So anyway, I'm giving my fear to God, to you and uh, just have the willingness to be willing to come up a, for a half hour at a time to look at some new lesson plans, you know. I don't know about you, but I don't like to work. I still want the easier, softer way. So what I do is I'll call Carol, if you're listening, Carol with a K, and I'll say, you know, I don't want to do this, so I'm going to commit to a half an hour, and I'll hang up the phone, I'll bookend, and I'll start, and the inertia will come, and I'll, and I'll start doing it. So I need you guys more than ever, so... I appreciate you guys listening to me to regurgitate all this stuff, and uh, and uh, I'm done. If you want to ask questions, lay it, bring it on, please.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, already. Right.
0: Like uh, when, in your first five years, right? Did you have things that you knew shouldn't be negotiable, but
1: were? And how did you get to the point where like those things became non-negotiable, like your meditation, your, your daily inventory, is, like different? Like, like how did it, how did you get it to not be negotiable? Hmm. Probably the way I didn't get the way I get all those things to be non-negotiable, like meditation and prayer, and uh, you know commitments at meetings and stuff like that. So I told you I joined this very structured and disciplined home group. So, like, I just be honest with my sponsor, you know. That was, the, I think, the main thing. Like, I told Richie, you know, I heard you go get down on your knees, you know. And I said, you know, Richie, I'm Jewish. Jews don't get down on your knees. And, and Richie had heard my inventory. And his response to me was, Michael, since when have you ever been a practicing Jew?
0: <laughs> <laughs> See,
1: get down on your knees. And he was right. He called me on my stuff. And the, I guess, Ore, the hardest thing for me, even today, but especially in the first five years, is to be honest with my sponsor. Because try to you know please my sponsor and stuff like that. But he didn't take any stuff. And the stuff that he was telling me hurt, but it was true and it resonated with me. And so I had the willingness to be willing. Also, um to ask for the willingness to be willing. You know, I don't want to pray. Give me the willingness to be willing. And then to take some action, even if it's calling somebody and saying, you know what? Many times I call a friend or somebody and t- tell on myself before I call my sponsor. I still have a hard time uh, calling my sponsor. My sponsor now um, is uh, sort of incapacitated. Not health as healthy, but he's more accessible now. And sitting in his yard, reading an inventory, he's offered me to do that. Is more scary than when he's at the mission answering phone calls like that because it's like one on one. So it's still scary. We've got to do the same thing. Call me. All right. Yes. Come on, ask. I'm not sure about. This, but you, you talked about like doing work outside the program and kind of looking at stuff, and then and then the work that you do in the program. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and where you are with that today. I'm trying to think if I do any Hi, work. Can you oh, it? I'm sorry. Um, so w- w- the work that I do outside of program and the work that I do. You
0: talked about like you know your
1: teddy bear. And yeah, kind of yeah. <laughs> I don't, don't have any teddy bears anymore. Yeah. And I don't hit things anymore. Um, I think for today, the twelve steps are my solution to everything. Um, but I, you know, within the twelve steps, you know, the inventory that I take, you know, I talk about my food. I talk about if I do exercise. You know, it doesn't say in the twelve steps to do exercise, but uh, I know I feel better when I do it. And I talk about what stuff that I do for others. The spiritual doing for others is you do something for somebody else and then don't tell anybody about it. So I don't even tell my sponsor. I'll just say, you know, I did something for others. Or I didn't do anything for others, and I, I need to double down maybe today. Um, stuff I did for myself, um, other than going to the beach and leaving work, some, some you know, healthy stuff that I did for myself. I did, the, I did three loads of wash today. And, you know, that's been piling up, so... And uh, uncluttering, I, I'm a hoarder. I live in a house that, we're, you know, my wife's not here, is she?
0: Um, no, it's,
1: we don't have people over because we have that problem. And so uh, if I do 15 minutes, a half hour of uncluttering every day, I know I'm doing the right thing. I don't do it consistently. Any resentments or fears that come up during the day at the end of the night, I put them down on paper. And then I talk about a Yahoo, which is something outstanding that happened during the day. And three gratefuls, three things that I'm grateful for. That's a good thing to go to sleep with. So those are sort of outside and inside the program. So, yes, Lucy.
0: How do you use the program in your marriage? The
1: how do I use the program? I'm no, I'm glad you're here. I need help. I'm glad you're here, Lisa. How do I use the program inside my marriage? So, you know, I have a whack-a-mole kind of disease. So I'm in many, many different programs. And I'm in a program that teaches me to keep the focus on myself. And um, um, it's very, very hard. And I, and I have to pray for my partner, And and, um, we talk finances once a week. And before we do that, we were taught to hold hands and tell each other we love each other, whether it's true or not,
0: and (laughs) saying a
1: prayer beforehand. There's all kinds of tools, Lucy, I would be happy to share with you. So am I done? Anybody have a quickie? Thank you for letting me share.